0: The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church located in Charleston, South Carolina.
1: For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. To the choirmaster, a psalm of David. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction. Out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O oh Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are many, they are more than can be set, told. In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book, it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. I have told the good news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me, and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me O Lord, make haste to help me. Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame and who say to me, Aha! Aha! But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, great is the Lord. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O my God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity to come together and publicly hear your word preached, Father. To join together our hearts in the loving kindness that you've given to us in Christ Jesus. Father, but we stumble. Our sin in the sin of the world, Father, besets us, and we come to you for your help, Lord. Father, your words are words of life. Father, for, for whatever besets us, for the adversity of an enemy, for the, 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 the weakness of old age. Father, for the, the, the betrayal of a friend. Father for whatever is before us and whatever needs we have, Lord. Your word is sufficient, your grace is sufficient to fill us, Lord, that your glory would be seen in the earth, Lord. So we we, we come again to you, Father, to be fed. Father, we like all other churches On this earth, Father, all other people who love you, we come to you and ask you to strengthen your messenger, Father, to strengthen him from his preparation and according to your word, Father, to deliver that which we need, Lord. Open our ears and our hearts to, to receive what you have for us today, Father, that we would be strengthened. It would be your strength and not our strength, Lord. And that we can be the people you've made us to be in Christ Jesus, Lord. We thank you. And we bless you and we ask these things for Christ's sake. Amen.
0: I invite you, if you would, to turn with me to James chapter 4. James chapter 4. began last week looking at James chapter 4 verses 1 through 10. Apparently last Sunday I was still suffering from some sort of delirium from being out to sea uh, because I had some uh, foolish notion that we would uh, cover those those texts last Sunday and uh, we didn't come close so um, we're going to Break this text into three parts, part two today, and we'll finish up next week. So let's read verses 1 through 10 just to capture the whole context as we open his word this morning. James writes, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have... Because you do not ask You ask and you do not receive Because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions You adulterous people Do you not know that friendship with the world Is enmity with God Therefore whoever wishes to be a friend of the world Makes himself an enemy of God Or do you suppose that it's to no purpose That the scripture says He yearns jealously over the spirit That he has made to dwell in us and He will exalt you. That's the word of the Lord for us this morning. Let's pray. God, help us this morning to look into the mirror of Your Word and to own whatever it is that we see. We pray that by Your Spirit, You would help us to see ourselves as we truly are, not as we fancy ourselves, not as we like to think of ourselves, but as we truly are. We thank You for Your Word, which sometimes wounds us, And your word word, which sometimes binds our wounds. Help us to be open to whatever your word will do in and through us today. Whatever it is you'd like to do in us through this text this morning, Lord, I pray that we would open our hearts to it right now. And that our commitment at the outset would be to obey you in all things, whatever the cost. And to trust you in all things, whatever the cost. So may that be the mindset of our hearts as we enter into your word this morning. For we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. There are a lot of things that could be said of me, but one of those things could never be that he has a green thumb. It's never been said of me, never will be said of me. I'm a terrible gardener. I don't enjoy it, not even a little bit. I do it only because I have to, and if you were to drive by my house right now, you would probably say you need to do much more of it. However, recently I was walking through the yard, and I saw we have at the end of our driveway a a Japanese magnolia tree, uh, which has um, only semi-worked in the space where it is, but it does tend to, at times of the year, bloom and other times go bare. And I've noticed for some time in the middle of that, in the middle of that uh, Japanese magnolia, uh, uh, when it was bare, this green thing shooting up through the middle of it with leaves coming out. Now, my intuition told me, well, that must be a weed because it's green and everything else is brown. It certainly doesn't belong where it is. But there's a part of me that just has happily ignored that thing, uh, hoping that it would go away. To my great surprise, it has never gone away. It just keeps getting bigger. There's one there now. There was one there before it. The one before it, I finally got around to pulling up when it was about that tall. Several times I had snipped it off at the top, and it kept growing back every single time. So finally I realized, hey, dummy, if you don't pull that thing up by the roots, it's going to keep coming back. And so I did I went out in the garden and I I pulled that that weed out and and the weed was like that tall But the roots went in every direction twice as long And I suddenly realized why that crazy thing kept coming back It kept coming back because what I saw on the surface was only a small part of what was actually there That there was something underneath the surface that was keeping that problem very much alive in my flower bed And the problem was never going to be solved until I pulled it up by the roots. James is a master gardener of the soul. And when we come to chapter 4 of James' small letter, he writes to this church and he understands that there are some problems that are happening within the body of Christ These problems have sort of a visible manifestation on the surface that everybody can see. But James, the master gardener, knows that underneath what is visible, there are roots that are invisible, that root deeply down into the the fabric of the congregation, and that, more importantly, root deeply down into the fabric of the individual hearts, of the individual people who belong to this congregation. And those roots are deadly roots. The roots in many ways are more important than the visible things that are going on on the surface And james knows if there's going to ever be healing for this church and healing for the people involved It's only going to happen when they first identify the roots of the problem And then when they yank the problem up by the roots and deal with it where it begins You see, James identifies in chapter 4 one of the many problems that he identifies in this particular letter. He's talked to them about several things. He's talked to them already about showing favoritism for the rich over the poor. He's already challenged them with how they use their tongues. And he says things like, you know, how can out of one mouth come praise to God and the other cursing on the other side of your mouth, cursing against your brother? How is this possible? The tongue is a fire. Who can tame it? He said those kinds of things. So there's favoritism, there's a misuse of the tongue, there's all sorts of other things happening that James is challenging in this particular letter. But when he gets to chapter 4, he raises this other issue of quarreling and fighting. And in verse 1, he asks this initial question, What causes quarrels and fights among you? So he raises this issue. Apparently, to the, the people to whom James is writing are, are quarreling and they're fighting. We talked last week about those terms being military terms, one meaning sort of uh, an armed major conflict and the other referring to sort of a minor skirmish. And so he's saying to them, what is it that's causing all this that's going on among you? You're fighting in big ways and then there's this, these big wars that are sort of breaking out. And then there are all these little small skirmishes that are taking place in the body and in your homes and in between one another, between parents and children, and between husbands and wives, between brothers and sisters. What causes all of this, James says? And he goes on to identify the roots. Now, James could have said, he could have said to those folks right then, he could have said, listen, knock it off. All right? Just cut it out. Quit your fighting. It's kind of like what parents do when they have two kids in the other room, right? And they're rumbling. You just yell to the other room, hey, cut it out, you know? Knock it off. Quit your fighting. Semi works for five minutes, right? But James knows that to just say to them, cut it out, knock it off, quit your fighting, is is tantamount to going in the garden and just snipping off that weed at the ground level. He knows that it's going to do nothing in the long run. It may quell the the problem for a moment, but he knows that the roots of that problem go far deeper than the visible conflicts that are seen on the surface. And so James, the master gardener of the soul, comes at them and he says, do you want to know what causes it? Let me tell you what the roots are underneath your quarreling and fighting. Let me do surgery on your soul and poke you in places where you don't want to be poked And identify what's really going on in your hearts And if by the grace of god you can see it You'll be appalled And we pray james says that it will drive you toward repentance That you might experience the grace of god and the healing of god But it only happens when we correctly diagnose the roots And we own them And so I've entitled this series, The Roots of Conflict, because that's what James is identifying here. The whole context is conflict. And he's telling us, what are the roots that get underneath our conflict? When you and I are in conflict, whether it be big conflict, major conflict, all-out war with somebody else, or whether it be just the casual conflict that happens in the give and take of life in the office, in the church, in the home, within our families... It all comes back to the same roots, and it all grows out of the same roots. And James identifies for us three roots that are underneath our conflicts. Three things that are going on inside of our hearts when we fight and when we quarrel. And we saw the first one last week. That first root, root number one. He identifies in that first verse, what causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Your passions are at war within you. Root number one to all of our conflicts, we have sinful desires inside of us that go haywire. He continues by saying, you desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and you can't obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. James goes right at us, and he pokes us right between the eyes. He says, you want to know what causes the fights and quarrels among you? You want to know what causes every little skirmish and every big battle? It's not a problem that's outside of you. It's a problem that's inside of you. It's not the other person. It's not the circumstances. It's not your boss. It's not your colleague. It's not your spouse. It's not your children. It's not... The resources that you have or don't have the 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 ultimate problem is a problem that resides inside of you You've got desires that rage inside of you you want something badly and you're not getting it and so you fight You want something and you don't get it so you fight What causes every fight what causes every war underneath every simple basic conflict and underneath every massive war that involves the nations are desires that root inside the hearts of human beings we want something and we don't get it and so we fight now I'm going to give you a I used moms and their children last week as an illustration I'm going to give you another hypothetical situation Just to, to remind us about this, this first route Now what I'm about to say to you is a hypothetical situation Which could possibly play out in my home You understand all of my guardrails around this illustration This is a hypothetical scenario That could possibly play out in my home it could go something like this. I come home from work in the afternoon having had a long day. Maybe it's been a stressful day, and I'm, I'm looking forward to coming home and just dropping my things and relaxing and, and, and coming down off of the day. And uh, as I come home, uh, I, I uh, walk to the door and, and quickly encounter my, my wife, Danielle, here on the front row. And, and she could hypothetically say something to me like, um, I've got to be careful here. Um, I, I, she, she might possibly say something like, You know, honey, that event for Friday night I just found out about that you've committed me to, you didn't tell me about that thing. And in this hypothetical scenario that could play out in my home, I I might respond to her by saying something along the lines of, Yes, I did tell you about that event. I told you about that. To which she might graciously reply a little more firmly, No, you didn't. At which point I might uh, reply a little more firmly, I most certainly did. At which point I might possibly uh, start to give her sort of a brief history of our marriage and how remarkably communicative I've been all throughout. I might possibly list for her multiple illustrations of how I have been a remarkable communicator of all of my calendar events that would involve her. I might give her lots of beautiful illustrations of... Of How good I am at this part of our marriage I might also hypothetically sort of leave out uh, Some of those moments that uh, paint me in a lesser light over the years Um, It might be that I give her a lesson right there in the kitchen of what a wonderful communicative loving and gracious husband and might possibly insinuate how blessed she is to be married to such a one At which point, she might remind me that there's another side to that story. That there's another history that I have failed to mention. And maybe, just maybe, at some point along the way, I might realize that I'm an idiot and that I probably didn't tell her about it on a Friday night and the right thing to do is just confess the sin and ask her forgiveness and move on. I suspect that probably none of you have ever had a scenario like that play out in your homes, right? I mean, it's never played out in ours either. I'm just telling you, it's hypothetical. It may be one day going to happen. But in such a scenario, a conflict could could erupt. And why would it erupt? Because I want something that I didn't get. What did I want? Well, I wanted to. Uh, I'm a complex person with complex desires. I wanted to come into the house, and maybe I just wanted peace and quiet for a few minutes. I had another desire in that particular scenario. I I, I wanted to come home to affirmation and to to uh, a joyful reception and not correction. I wanted to be justified. In my behavior, so I attempted to justify it myself. I wanted to be told what a wonderful communicative husband I am, not how I had dropped the ball. I had desire. There were things I wanted that I didn't get. And so I, what does James say? Say it with me. I fight. I quarrel. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Desires. You want something and you don't get it. And so you fight. Something as simple as a a, a moment of relaxation when I walk in the door and I get interrupted or I get what I don't expect and what I didn't want. And all of a sudden, my desire has been met with the reality that I'm not going to get what I want. And so I have a choice to make. And the choice we often make in that moment is we fight to get what we want. And so James identifies that first issue. I want something, I don't get it. We talked last week about ken sandy's book the peacemaker and how he identifies how this thing these desires spiral out of control pretty quickly in our hearts It begins with something simple that we want Maybe it's a it could be one of two things It could be a sinful desire that we want something that we know that god has forbidden and we want it anyway And so we fight for it or it can be a legitimate desire a good desire A healthy desire that overflows its banks and becomes a destructive desire because that desire spins in a moment from being something simply that we want to all of a sudden now something that I demand, something that I have to have in order to be happy or to be satisfied. Or to be fulfilled And so my desires quickly can turn into demands And I then begin to demand of the other person That they give me what I want And if they don't give in to my demand And give me what I want Then I move to the next phase Which is I, I go from being just the person who wants something To the person who demands something To now I set myself up as judge And I judge that person And their motives and their behavior And I issue sort of a verdict On who they are and what their motives are and what they're doing and what they ought to do. And then beyond that, it spirals even further to I punish. I want something. I don't get it. I demand that you give it to me. If you don't, then I judge you. If you still don't give me what I want, then I'm going to do something to inflict harm upon you. I'm going to yell at you. I'm going to scream at you. I'm going to say ugly things to you. I'm going to call you names. I'm going to try to provoke you. I'm gonna go into an all out war with you. I'm gonna slander you, I'm gonna gossip about you. Or maybe it spins in a different direction, and I choose to punish you by just ignoring you, by giving you the cold shoulder, by, by by being cold and distant from you. We have all sorts of ways that we punish people when they don't give us what we want, right? At the end of the day, James says you want things and you don't get it. And so you fight. Every time you and I are in a conflict, every time you and I are in a in a battle. Or a skirmish We've got to train ourselves To stop and look in the mirror And ask the question What do I want? What is it that I want that I'm not getting? That's how we get right to the root of it What is it that I want that I'm not getting? Why am I fighting to get something? Do I deserve it? Do I have some biblical right to demand this? In most cases the answer is no No So we want things and we don't get them, so we fight That's a hard pill to swallow, isn't it? You're not even responding to that, so I guess it's not so hard for you. It's hard for me It's hard for me to admit that I'm the problem. Is it hard for you to admit you're the problem? When I engage in a fight, I'm always about 99.99% convinced that the other person is the problem And if they would just get their act together All things would be right The reality is I really want things and if they would just get their act together and do what I want, everything would be right. That's a different story. But James isn't finished. If that doesn't hurt us badly enough, if that doesn't wound us badly enough, James says there are two more roots to our conflicts. And both of them get progressively worse and they dig deeper into our soul. The second one begins in the second part of verse 2 where he says this. You don't have because you don't ask. You ask and you don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions James says not only is the problem that you have desires and that you want things and you don't get it But he says the second problem is you're pridefully self-sufficient Prideful self-sufficiency is the second root of conflicts you don't have I'm fighting because I want something and I don't have it I have a desire that's gone unmet And James turns around and says, you want to know why you don't have whatever it is you're fighting for? Because you don't ask God. It's as though James is saying, hey geniuses, don't you know what God has promised to those who he loves? Don't you know what resources are available to you if you will simply pray? Don't you know what God has said about the power of prayer and his inclination to bless his children? Don't you think he's good for it? I mean, think about the irony of it all. I'm consumed with desire for something to the point where I will go and fight to get it. I'll fight to get it for myself and I can't get it. And all the while, I don't even bother to stop and ask the one who owns all things and controls all things if i might have it. and i wonder as i read that how many things have i fought for and never received that would have been given graciously by god had i just stopped and asked. that's a painful question to think through. how many things have i have i gone to battle for and never been able to capture that god would have graciously given had i laid down my weapons and prayed you don't have because you don't ask me that's painful isn't it it's painful because all of us right this second can reflect upon the conflicts that we've been involved in, in our homes, in our workplaces, and in church contexts. And we can look back and we can, we can think right now, if we're thinking clear-headed, in a clear-headed way, about how, how, what great extents we have gone uh, to, to to fight for what we want, to justify ourselves, what we have done to go get what we want, and how very, very little we stop stopped to pray. What's the problem there? The problem there is I'm pridefully self-sufficient I don't think I need to go to God. I think I can go get it myself And so I don't bother to pray I just go after it I live as though I am self-sufficient and I don't need God I live as though I am my God and I'll go get what it is that I want And sadly the only time we pray often is is when we have smashed headlong into a brick wall and we're smarting from the pain. You know, God's Word has so much to say about prayer and so much to say about God's inclination toward His people when they pray. Look at what Matthew chapter 6, verse 25 and following says. Jesus says this, Therefore I tell you, don't be anxious about your life, what you'll eat or what you'll drink or about your body, what you'll put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? What is God saying? Christ himself is saying, look around. Our heavenly Father takes care of the animals that fly in the air. They don't have to worry about the necessities of life because God cares for them and provides for them. Are not you more valuable to him than they are? Why do you think he wouldn't do the same for you? The message of the text is simply this Jesus tenderly, tenderly assures us that our Father loves us dearly and that He will provide every necessity of our life. The necessities of our life are never on the table for not being met if we know Christ is our Savior and God is our Heavenly Father because He's promised He'll meet our needs. So if we if we we begin there God has promised to meet all of my needs everything that I truly need in life He is going to meet he is going to take care of that. I don't have to be anxious about it I don't have to go get in a fight about it So now we've moved up to a level anything that we're anxious about and anything that we're fighting about has to be above The level of need it has to be in the category of wants and desires, right? Well, what about that? Jesus spoke to that too in Matthew chapter 7 verse 7 and following he says this he says ask And so Jesus ups the ante and says, what about this category of desires? What is uh, is his sort of um, position toward us when it comes to the things that we desire and the things that we want? Well, he gives us the illustration of a father and his son. That's something we can all, for the most part, grasp, right? I mean, as parents, fathers, mothers, you delight to give your children the desires of their heart. That's what makes Christmas morning so fun for parents, right? You know, Christmas as an adult you know it changes right when you're a kid it's all about waking up and opening the presents but as an adult i don't care if i get anything for christmas the joy of christmas for me is op- is waking up and watching my son open his presents why because i delight to see him enjoy getting the things that he wants and that he likes it brings pleasure to my heart to meet his desires There's something inside of me that is blessed and warmed by seeing his face light up when something that he wants he receives There's something joyful about being a part of the process of being a dad and being able to provide the things that my son likes That's part of being a parent Now I understand as a parent It's not always a healthy thing to give him everything that he wants And so part of my job is to balance that out, right? It's to meet the desires of his life and to take pleasure in his joy in getting some of the things that he wants. But it also is part of my job to say to him no when he has desires for things that are not helpful to him. And the point that Jesus is making is just like a father delights in giving good things to his son. God, our father, delights in giving good things to us. How gracious is God? He says, look, you ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you'll find. How much more will your Father who is in heaven good, give good things to those who simply ask Him? Hey, listen, I don't know what your concept of God is, but God is not some heavenly scrooge sitting up in heaven, some miser who hates to get off any of his cash. He's not some God who says, you want what? No. Who takes some pleasure in saying, no. No. No fun for you, no joy for you, no pleasure for you. Sometimes I think we believe we begin to believe that that's what God is like. That He's some killjoy who wants to keep everything that's fun and joyful and pleasurable away from us. God is in fact the opposite of that. He delights to give good things to His children who ask Him. And James's point is, we often don't have simply because we don't ask Him. Because we're pridefully self-sufficient. We don't think we need to ask Him. We think we can go get it for ourselves. Jesus said in John fifteen seven, if you abide in me and my words abide in you Ask whatever you wish and it'll be done for you And so here jesus qualifies these sort of broad statements about asking and receiving By by making clear to us what james is also making clear to us in the next statement And that's this this is not an open book to where I you know Kind of have an open door to say, you know god. I want a cadillac tomorrow great now give it That's not the issue The issue is if you abide in me If you're walking with me, if you're living in submission to me, if you're walking according to my will and the great desire of your heart is to follow me and to honor me with your life and to please me, then you open up your your heart and and your desires and cast them on me and it's my joy to meet your needs and to meet your desires. He's promised to give us everything we need for life and godliness and and if I don't have it, then that means I don't need it. Even if I want it. So, what are some of the reasons? Let's let's examine our hearts for a second. Why are, what are some of the reasons why you and I don't pray? I want something and I don't get it, so I'm tempted to go fight for it. Why is it that I fight rather than pray? I don't know. I could come up with a, you could probably come up with a better list, but let me give you just a few things that popped into my head. One is a lack of trust in God. At the end of the day, I don't fully trust that God is going to navigate me the way I want to be navigated I don't fully trust that he's listening and he's going to come through when I ask him So I feel like I need to just go do it myself I don't fully trust him If I trusted him, I wouldn't have to go fight, right? If I trusted God to provide for me, I wouldn't fight for what I want I would simply pray and say, God, here's what I want. I trust you to provide for me if it's something that is according to your will and something that you would choose to give. So if I choose to fight rather than to do that, then that is an indication that inside of my heart there's a lack of trust in God. There's a second thing as well. We lack trust in His goodness or His ability. So on the one hand, I'm not sure that God is good. I think I know what's good for me. You see, it's that thing out there that I want, that I'm willing to go fight for. I think that's what's good for me. I'm not sure God has the same concept of what's good for me that I have. And so when I'm in that crossroads and I want something and I don't get it, I have a choice to make. Do I do I trust in God's goodness that what He ultimately decides for me is going to be what's good and what's best? Or do I look in the mirror and say, you know what, Greg? You need to go get what you want because you're the one who knows what's really good and what's best. Secretly, not quite sure about God's motives. You know that's 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 Satan's oldest game plan. James is clear. He mentions Satan in this text a couple of times. We haven't gotten to it yet, but he mentions it. But he's very clear to say Satan is not the cause of our fights and quarrels. He is not the one who is the cause of it. He is not the root problem in conflicts. What Satan is is he's an instigator and an encourager. He's the one who stands alongside it and sort of fans the flames of our sinful desires He lies to us do you remember the Garden of Eden the first time we encounter that rascal? What's going on? Adam and Eve God's given the whole garden Enjoy all of it. This is all here for your enjoyment and your pleasure. There's just one thing. Don't eat from the tree that's in the middle of the garden. That's it. Everything else, your pleasure and your joy. Go for it. Enjoy. Eat, play, run till your heart's content. One day, Eve's strolling along by that that old tree. And here comes Satan in the form of a serpent. And what's his tactic? What's his game plan? It's the same game plan that he has been using forever since Eve and Adam. He comes alongside Eve. He says, did God really say that? Is that what God really said? He questions God's word. He questions God's truth and attempts to redefine it. The second thing he does is he questions God's motives. You know, no... you won't surely die Come on, you're not going to die Here's the reality God, God just knows He knows if you eat of this tree You're going to be like Him And He doesn't want you to be like Him He wants to be the only one like Him You see He doesn't have your best interest at heart He's keeping you down If you eat of this thing You're going to be like Him You're not going to have to submit to anybody. You'll be your own. God. And Eve says, oh, yeah, that sounds pretty good. And so she goes for it. And that's been the same tactic of the enemy forever, right? He comes alongside us in that moment of temptation, that moment when we want something and we don't get it, and we're tempted to fight, and he says, you know, I'm not sure. He just whispers, you know, I'm not sure God's got your best interest at mind. I think God's holding back on you. I think God's not, he's not, he's not giving you the best. He's holding back. If you want the best, you're going to have to go get it for yourself. And he just fans the flames of our prideful self-sufficiency. Take matters into your own hands. Go get it. You can have it. It's right there. The consistent testimony... Of Scripture, if it tells us anything about God, it tells us that He is both good and He is trustworthy. He is good and He is trustworthy. And Satan will attempt to undercut that in our minds in that moment of decision. Another reason we don't pray is because we know how selfish many of our desires are and we don't dare ask. Right? I mean, that's true. You've had this, right? Where you know you want something and you know this is not what God would have. And so you don't pray because you know what the answer is before you pray, right? This person's wounded me, and what I really want is I want to get back at him. Who does that, you know? Who says, okay, let me stop and pray. Dear God, I really want to take out vengeance on that guy. I'm to go punch him in the face. Can you permit this? No. We don't pray because we know our motives are rotten. And so we just go do it. We just go do it. God, my real motive is that I'm jealous that she has something that I really want. And I haven't gotten it, and you've given it to her. I'm not praying about that. I'm just going to go start talking about her behind the scenes. We're pridefully self sufficient. That's, that's the bottom line. He goes on to say, You don't have because you don't ask. Many of the things that you fight for and you never get are things that you're fighting for that if you just lay down your weapons and you would pray, God might graciously give it to you. And if he doesn't, you don't need it to begin with and it's not worth fighting for. He follows that up by saying this, you ask and you don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. That's painful. Some of the things that we want, we want simply for selfish and ungodly reasons. Now, I don't want to spend the time with it this morning, but it's not... James is not saying to us that it's wrong to desire things that we enjoy. Sometimes people will take this passage to mean that. That it's wrong to to pray for things that are just simply desires that we would like to enjoy. That's not what James is saying. The bigger testimony of Scripture tells us that we take our desires to the Lord. And He graciously often grants our desires. And takes joy in doing so. In the context here, what James is saying is, you don't have because you don't ask, and many of the times that you ask, you ask and your motives are just stinking and rotten. And so God is going to give you things that He knows are rotten for you. And that He knows that are coming out of a heart that is going in the wrong direction. He is our Heavenly Father. He knows what's best. He doesn't give us everything. He knows that some of the things that we want are things that are not good for us. And so He says, no! My son, I mentioned earlier, he loves Krispy Kreme donuts. If I said to him on Monday morning, Son, I'm thinking about what we'll eat this week for, uh, for dinner every night. And I'm thinking we're going to have uh, chicken and vegetables every night. Or we're going to have Krispy Kreme donuts. Which would, you, which would you desire? I know What would his answer be? Krispy Kreme donuts for dinner every night, Dad. I'm good with that. That's what I want. And as a father, I'm going to say, No. No, because I know that's not good for you. It may be what you want, but it's not what's best for you. There's a bigger picture that I see right here. There's a much bigger picture that I see, and that bigger picture dictates that I say to you in this moment, no, it may not feel good for you to hear me say no right now, but in the long run, it is what is good and what is best. And God looks at us that way too. We pray for things that we sincerely want, that we sincerely desire, that we think we desperately need in that moment. And God simply looks back and says, I see the big picture, my son. I see the big picture, my daughter. I see what's coming down the road and I see what's going on in ways that you don't see and what you don't understand is that right now, this is not what's good and this is not what's best for you, even though you want it deeply. And so the answer is no, but be patient and trust me. But like a child during a temper tantrum When we hear the word no We often do the same thing Instead of trusting God and choosing contentment We go after our desires on our own And we fight and we quarrel Here's the bottom line in that We don't pray Largely because we think We can handle things better than God That's the reality We don't like to admit that But it's true Much of the time when I'm in a a fight or quarrel, big or small, at the end of the day, the reason I haven't stopped and prayed is because I think I can handle it better. And so I go fix it myself. I go do it myself. I go pursue it myself. And James is is trying to exhort us here. He's trying to help us to look in the mirror and see this tendency because what he wants is he wants for us to stop in the moment when the temptation arises, when that desire comes up and that desire is starting to push us in a direction of fighting for something that we want, to stop and ask ourselves the question, what is it that I want that I'm not getting? And then secondly, am I going to trust God or am I going to be prideful and self-sufficient and go after it myself and fight for it? And that leads us to really the third root Verses 4 through 5 And that's this And this is the most painful Brace yourselves Verse 4 You adulterous people Do you not know That friendship with the world Is enmity with God Therefore whoever wishes to be a friend of the world Makes himself an enemy of God Or do you suppose That it's to no purpose That the scripture says He yearns jealously over the spirit That he's made to dwell in Us. Just stick with verse four for right now. That's a pretty bold thing to say. You adulterous people. He identifies the third root and it's spiritual adultery. James says, When you fight, when you fight, when you quarrel, underneath that is a spiritual adultery. There's a root of spiritual adultery that is rooted down inside your heart. You've left your fidelity to your God and you've prostituted yourselves at the feet of some other God. He says, You adulteress. You adulteresses. Isn't that a crazy thing to call people who are just fighting? There's nothing sexual about the context of this, right? It's about fighting and quarreling. So, why in the middle of it is it say, You adulterous people with a big exclamation mark in my Bible? Because the people to whom he writes are, are Jewish, and their background is Jewish, and they understand the whole history of the Old Testament, that this has been a living illustration that God has used all throughout the prophets with his people. You see, in the Old Testament, God's people, Israel, he, he constantly described his relationship with them as a marriage, that he's the husband and Israel is the bride. And many times throughout the history of Israel, when God's people have rebelled against God and chased after the, the gods of the foreign nations around them, God has used this. Illustration of marriage and adultery to describe what they're doing and he calls them adulterers and adulteresses all the time in fact the entire book of Hosea is All about this illustration and we studied Hosea a couple of years ago I know you remember it all because it was so riveting that you've categorized, you know categorized it in your brains forever but in Hosea God literally says to the prophet Go and marry for yourselves a woman of harlotry. He says to the prophet of God, Go marry a prostitute in the sight of everybody. I want you to go marry an adulterous woman. And I want you to do that as a living illustration to the nation around you of what the nation is doing to me. He says, Hosea, go marry this woman, Gomer, who is known to be an adulteress. And furthermore, once you marry her, she's going to continue her adultery. And she's going to bear you children, and some of those children are going to be yours, and some of those children are not going to be yours. They're going to be the result of her adulterous relationships while married to you. If we had a sign-up sheet for that job in the history of the church, right? Who would sign up for that one? I'm sure Hosea wished he could not sign up for that one. But Hosea is an obedient man of God, and he does that. And as the book of Hosea plays out, he marries Gomer, this adulterous woman, and she continues to to commit adultery with other men to the point of even leaving the home and leaving him at home with the kids and moving in with her lovers. And the whole thing was this big illustration to the nation of Israel because God is saying to them, that's what you've done to me. You as a nation are Gomer, and I am Hosea. I have given you everything. I have been utterly faithful to you. I've provided every single thing you've needed in your life I have protected you. I have cared for you. I have loved you. I have been faithful to you I have been faithful to every promise I've made to you and you have literally run out on me and are snuggling up to gods all over the place You are cheating on me You're adulterous You claim to love me and at the same time you're having an affair with the world and that illustration, James, just flips on its head in the New Testament. And he says, you know what? Church in the New Testament, that illustration applies. You go to the book of Revelation, and what does it call the church? But the bride of Christ. The bride of Christ. So James can rightfully say to these people, you're adulterers. you adulterers. Because what you're really doing is you're becoming friends with the world. This word friendship in English, we... It's hard for us to capture because when we talk about friendship that can mean a lot of different things, right? I might just you might be an acquaintance and I call you my friend But this word here means someone with whom I'm intimately involved and with whom I share values with whom I share intimacy And james is saying you know what? Here's the reality You are cheating on me and the mistress with whom you're cheating on me is the world You're cheating on me with the world. And our time is about up, so we don't have time to explore that fully. But simply when James talks about the world here, he's talking about the evil sort of anti-God system that dominates the world and its people. The system around us that drives the world in which we live. The system of values, the system of morals, the system of human institutions and traditions that either knowingly or unknowingly are at war with God. The system in which we find ourselves. The Bible tells us as believers, we are in this world, but we're not of it. That there's a system around us that is in operation, that is winding more and more into chaos, and God has placed us in the middle of it as His emissaries, as His lights in the midst of a darkness, and we're to be in it, and we're to operate, and we have a mission in the midst of it, but we're never to be of it and like it. And what James is saying is, you are like it. You have left me and you are living like the world and you are snuggling up to the world and you are acting like the world you're cheating on me you're cheating on me out of one side of your mouth you claim to love me but on the other side you lo- you are in love with the world and the things of the world some of the things you desire are worldly things that you have absolutely no need for and yet you're bowing at that altar in some cases, the needs are the desires that you're chasing, you're, 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 you're chasing them through the wisdom of the world, not obeying me but doing it the way the world does it. What does the world around us do when you want something? You go get it and you step on whoever you have to step on to get it. Is't that how the corporate world works? You want to make your way up, you do what you have to do to get up and it doesn't matter who you hurt or wound in the process. You go fight for what's out, you assert yourself. You tear others down you do whatever it takes We do those same things So james says you're committing spiritual adultery and you know your mistress is your mistress is the world And she's a pretty nasty mistress by the way John chapter 12 14 and 16 all tell us that the world is ruled by satan. He's called the god of this world So this mistress with whom we cheat on god is is a mistress who is uh, ruled by satan She's morally corrupt. We see that in romans chapter 1 she hates god john chapter 15 jesus tells us that he says this in verse 18 if the world hates you know this That it hated me before it hated you The world hates christ the world hates its creator The world's system is set up and ruled and directed by satan in order to To do war against god and his people and to pull his people away from him Everything in the world is set up to generate that in your life and in my life It is set up to draw us away from god to other lovers the world's values run completely antithetical to God's values. And when we snuggle up to the world, it corrupts and defiles us. That's why in James chapter 1, James says in verse 27, pure and, and undefiled, I mean, pure, and, uh, pure religion is this to care for orphans and widows and to keep oneself, what? Unstained from the world. Because when we snuggle up to it, it stains us, it corrupts us. The other thing you need to know about the world is. This mistress, she's dying. First John chapter 2, following. Don't love the things... Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is what? It's not in Him. All that's in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, it's not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world, and say this part with me, It's passing away. Along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. She's a dying mistress. God's people still prostitute themselves with the world around them. We still believe that the world will give us what we want. We still believe that sometimes the world will give us the things that we need to be truly satisfied and we don't fully trust that God would do so. And so we run to the world, we operate like the world, we fight like the world. And just like a literal adulterer, we think we can hide those shenanigans. Just like a literal adulterer, we we think we can ride the fence playing both sides. On the one hand, we can claim to love God, but on the other hand, we can snuggle up to the world. On the one hand, we can claim to be a a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and, and, and dwell by the Spirit of God. And on the other hand, we can fight like the world fights to get what we want. And James levels a killer blow to us. He says, do you not know? Do you not know? When you snuggle up to the world, you become the enemy of God. You cannot ride the fence. You cannot have it both ways. When you go embrace the world, you set yourself up. As God's enmity As God's enemy There's enmity between you The, the language here is It's again that war and battle imagery God, God brings out the army against you And let me just tell you something I don't know about how you pick fights But you don't want to pick a fight with God being on the other side It's a bad day when we wake up And look and we realize that we're in a battle And on the other side it's God We lose every time We lose every time We think we can keep up a religious facade and enjoy God's benefits while at the same time prostituting ourselves or the world. And James says, no way. No way. You cannot have it both ways. You will love God and serve Him, or you will embrace the world and serve it. And if you choose to do that, God is not your friend. He's your enemy. And He will destroy you. You see, the problem is we're double-minded. Back to that word he used in chapter 1, double-minded. Double-minded. On the one hand, we want to to embrace God, but on the other hand, we really want to snuggle up to the world. I read a story this week about a particular part of the world where they capture monkeys. That's random, isn't it? But it was fascinating to me because the way they capture these monkeys... What they do is they get a gourd and they hollow out the inside of the gourd cut the end off and hollow out the inside And they hang that gourd on a tree and they put inside that gourd warm rice because these monkeys love the warm rice and Inevitably what happens is the monkeys will come to the tree. They'll smell that warm rice. and They're like mm, warm rice Somebody has left it here for me They want it badly They want the rice and so they reach their little monkey hand inside there and they grab hold of the rice. But now they have a problem. They can't get their hand out with their fist made. See? And so they will literally sit there in the tree and they will kick and scream and jump up and down until somebody literally walks up and captures them. And it's a vivid illustration of what it means to be double-minded. On the one hand, I really want the rice. On the other hand, I don't want to be captured. It's kind of like us, you know. The world is out there, and it's appealing, and it's desiring. Its desires pull at us, and we really, really want the world in many ways. And so we reach our hand in, and we grab hold, and then we hear God, on the other hand, saying, you need to let go of that rice. You need to release that rice, and we kick and scream. And God says to us, you can't have it both ways. You'll release that rice and you'll return to me or you're going down. I don't know what's going on in your life right now. I, I, don't, I don't know what kind of squir- uh, squirrels. That's what happens when you put quarrel with, with skirmish. Um, at least in my mind. I don't know what kind of quarrels. I don't know what kind of skirmishes are going on in your life. I don't know what kind of little fights you're involved in at the moment. But James implores you to look in the mirror, and he implores me to look in the mirror and to ask ourselves, what is it that's causing the fights and the quarrels? The problem is probably one of three things, and maybe all three. You want something and you can't get it, so you're fighting for it. You think you know better than God what you need, so you're fighting to get something he hasn't provided. Or you're really chasing after things of the world prostituting yourself against him. And in either case, it's a pretty rotten thing to see about yourself. The very next thing James says in this text is, but God gives more grace. Praise God for that next sentence, right? Because when I examine my own heart, what I see is pretty nasty. Because all of those roots find homes inside of me at various times. And it's pretty repulsive to admit. And just when I begin to see those things, there's a part of me that says, you know what? It's hopeless. It's hopeless. I have no hope of getting this right. I am so relieved to hear James say, but God gives more grace. He's going to tell us next week that he gives grace to people who humble themselves and submit to him. I don't know about you, but maybe your life is marked by wars and fights and squirrels. I keep want to say squirrels. Skirmishes. Small little, little fights or big battles. Maybe it's time for you to lay down your weapons. And stop the fighting. Maybe it's time for you to say, you know what, God... My life has been marked by all this fighting and quarreling and little tiny ways with my kids and my my spouse and big ways in various parts of my life. And the reality is, nobody else is the problem. I've been blaming everybody else. I'm the problem. Help me to just drop my weapons and trust You to fulfill my desires. When there's something I want that I don't get, God, help me just to fall on my knees and pray and to trust You to cultivate contentment inside of me with what You give. Help me to be help me to be faithful to You and not to snuggle up to the world and chase after the things. I don't want to be the monkey in the tree. Help me right now to release the rice that I'm holding on to. Whether it's something that I want or some respect that I think I deserve or some treatment that I haven't gotten that I want, help me just to let go Let's pray together. Father, You are a gracious and merciful God. You wound us in order to expose what we need to see and then You, by Your grace and mercy, bind up the wound. This text that we've studied is painful and it wounds us because we see things about ourselves that we don't want to see. I feel so much better, God, when I can blame somebody else. But the reality is more often than not, the problem is me. I want things and I don't get it, so I fight. I pray for that husband and wife who had a little dispute this morning on the way in. Oh, maybe it was petty and small, but it's the same thing. I pray for that man or that woman who's in some all-out battle at some phase of their life. They're Fighting and fighting. I pray for those who, Lord, who may not be in some particular dispute at the moment, but who know all too well what this feels like and looks like because it comes up in their lives. I pray that you would help each of us, Lord, just embed these truths into our hearts. And help us to lay down our weapons and stop the fighting. And look to you and to pray and to be content with whatever you give. Because you are a gracious God who delights in our joy. And if you haven't given, there's a reason, and it's for our good. May we trust you. Lord, if there's someone here who doesn't know you, Lord Jesus, they've never trusted their lives to you. They've never submitted themselves to you and confessed their sin, received you as Lord and Savior. And the, the reality is probably their lives are marked by all sorts of fights, and they have absolutely no, they have absolutely no resources. May they see You as the only resource that truly matters. And find in You mercy and grace to forgive them and make them new. We pray it in Your holy name. Amen.